James Dean. Few characters capture, capture the sort of the rebel mystique better than a guy like that, better than a guy like James Dean. Right? You've got the, the blue jeans, the red bomber jacket. You have that brooding look, the cigarette that hangs lazily from that lower lip. And Rebel Without a Cause, James Dean sort of epitomized the kind of angry, angsty, frustrated teen, the outcast who openly questioned society's values and and defied his parents and who charts a new course in life. You know, before there was Matt Dillon of The Outsiders, or before there was Christian Slater and Pump Up the Volume, before there was Judd Nelson and The Breakfast Club, Now, maybe half of you know those references, right? I'm dating myself. But if you know any of them, before all of them, like Dean, James Dean made rebellion cool. He made it cool. Friends, it seems as Americans, many of us have always been attracted to rebellion, right? From Woodstock all the way back to George Washington. Rebellion, you might say, runs in our blood, right? Rebellion is the American way. We celebrate the rebel. We name motorcycles after rebels. We lionize them, even worship rebels for the fearless ways, right? They break from norms and and carve out their own paths through life. Because somewhere deep down, many of us believe that rebellion, rebellion equates with freedom. It equates with freedom, right? Freedom from the past, maybe, freedom from our parents, freedom from society's expectations and constraints. To be rebellious, for many of us, we believe is to be truly free, right? To take charge of our own destiny. Do you resonate with that maybe just a little? Right? Pushing boundaries, defying expectations, maybe even in just small ways. But friends, what about rebellion against God? What about rebellion against God? Is that the mark of being truly free? Is that how we, in fact, take charge of our own destinies? Well, to think through questions like this, I want to invite you this morning back to the Old Testament book of Numbers, the book of Numbers. We're going to be in chapters 13 and 14, and if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, fear not. We have Bibles provided in the seatbacks before you, and you can find Numbers 13 beginning on page 121, page 121. And you're going to want to keep those Bibles open because we're going to be referencing those Bibles uh, throughout the morning. And yes, I did say Numbers 13 and 14. I did not say 15. I know the sermon card says 15, but as I was reflecting on the passage and reading through it and studying it, I made one of those audibles this week, and I thought, you know what, we're going to put chapter 15 in with 16 and 17 next week. Now, maybe I'll regret that next week, but for this morning, we're going to be Numbers 13 and 14. Now, if you're not familiar with this book, Numbers is, is really the story of how Israel's trek Right, how that took place and exactly what took place as they went to the promised land. So a journey that should have taken but a few weeks would in fact last 40 long painful years as a whole generation would perish in the wilderness. And why will they perish? Well, that's what we're going to learn this morning. Now up to this point, right, the trek has gone reasonably well. 
God had ordered them around himself and his word. He had prepared them. He had as well promised to go before them. That's all chapters 1 through 10. And yet they just got but a short distance into that journey. And what did we find? Well, first there's a mutiny over the menu. The people are upset because there's not meat. And then as well, there's jealousy within the family, right? We saw Miriam and Aaron. They resent Moses' mediates position among them. That's chapters 11 and 12. But that's all settled as Moses mediates for them. And now as we come to chapter 13, the people have arrived on the outskirts of the promised land, right? The mountains and valleys lie just in the distance. They can see them with their own eyes. Well, right, what about the camp? would have been filled with anticipation, some anxiety as well, right? What will they find? Will the land be all they hoped it would be, right? Who would be there? Because time won't afford us to read all of the two chapters. Let me just give you a brief overview of chapters 13 and 14. So chapter 13 opens then with Moses commissioning 12 men, one man from each tribe, to go and sort of spy and scout out the land. So you can think of them, again, as scouts on a kind of reconnaissance mission to the promised land. And they're going to return those scouts after 40 days, and they're going to bring a report to the people. Only we come to find the report, this is the thing with committees, it's a, it's a, it's a divided report, right? There's a majority report, and there's a minority report. And the majority report says, hey, you know what? The land is plentiful, but so are the people, strong people there with fortified cities. And that majority report says, hey, listen, this is too risky an endeavor. They'd rather select a new leader and go back to Egypt than try and take the land. But there's a minority report, just two of the, ten, of the 12 spies, rather. They don't deny the facts. Yeah, it is a bountiful land, and there are powerful people, and yet they're going to say in chapter 14, verse 8, Caleb and Joshua, if the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey, which is another way to speak of abundance. Only, they say, do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But friends, those two can't carry the whole congregation. And the terrified ten sort of win out and and their grumbling spreads like gangrene throughout the people. And God determines to disinherit them and to start all over until Moses intervenes and he's going to intercede for the people and God partially relents from his judgment. He's not going to disinherit them. He won't disown them outright. But they will be judged, and the entire generation that refused him and rebelled against him, we learn, will slowly die off in the wilderness. They'll never make it to the promised land. Now, grieving over those consequences and recognizing, right, that they need to make things right, what do they do? Well, some of them decide, you know what? We're going to go to the promised land anyway. Change their mind, not back to Egypt, to the land we go. And so they go to fight at the end of chapter 14. And yet without the Lord fighting for them, they fall. And that's how chapter 14 ends. More dead bodies strewn across the wilderness. 
And what should have been in chapters 13 and 14, what should have been the story's climax becomes a national catastrophe. Something that would be written about in, in the Psalms and Amos, right, as we read in Hebrews 3 and 1 Corinthians 10. These chapters are sort of immortalized and they're really grilled into Hebrews' own memory. And part of what we're witnessing is just the very simple fact that to rebel against God is to be rejected by God. Far from ushering in a life of freedom and joy and liberation, rebellion results in nothing but misery and destruction. So as we think about these two chapters, I want to think about them from the sense of look at sort of rebellion's root. I want to first look at rebellion's root and then secondly look at rebellion's reward. Look at rebellion's reward. And those are going to serve, again, our two simple points, rebellion's root and rebellion's reward. So first, rebellion's root. Rebellion's root. As in, where does it come from? Where does rebellion originate? So look back, chapter 13. It opens up right there. Chapter 13, verse 1. We read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So just stop right there. Notice something critical about the land. We're already being told this land is a gift, God says. The land is a gift, which assumes the land is God's to give, that the land is his to give, as in God owns it. It was no more this land the property of the Canaanites than it will finally be the property of the Israelites. Right, Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, right? All those who live in it. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. It is his right to give this land to the Israelites. So recognize it is in fact in some ways already theirs. Back, if uh, you caught this back as we were reading through chapter 10 verse 9, God refers to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites. He refers to that land back in chapter 10 already as your land. Israel already in God's mind, they possess it already. It's already theirs, right? The state has been purchased, right? The pools, the beautiful vineyards, the bountiful fields, right? You name it. It's got everything. It has plenty of room for all of them. And God has already signed over the title. Signed over the estate to his people. Put it in their name. Right? It's just a matter of the people moving in. Now there are some residents. right? There's some squatters, so to speak, on God's property. And they're going to have to move them out first. But he has promised he would be with them. He would, he's promised he would drive them out. And why is he giving it? Why is he giving Israel this land? Well, it's because he promised them the land. All the way back in Genesis 12, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. You see, God had promised Abraham that he would have offspring like the dust of the earth. And so don't miss where we are. Here, right at the boundaries of the promised land, Israel, now two million people strong, like the dust of the earth. And here they are before the land that God had promised so many centuries before. Land and a great nation. Friends, God right here is making good on his promises because that's what God does. 
He is in the business of making good on his promises. Not a one does he fail to keep. And then in verses 3 to 16, it describes how the, the 12 men were selected to spy out the land, right? representative from each tribe, highlighting how no tribe is going to be left out of this work. Right? All are going to share a role because all will help drive out the people because all possess a piece of that property, an inheritance in that land. And so we read about the reconnaissance mission. Look down chapter 13, verses 17 to 20. Look down to chapter 13, beginning in verse 17. Moses sent them, that is the, the twelve, to spy out the land of Canaan. It said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. And now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Right, so this is as much a scouting mission, right, as it is a spying mission. And there, verse 20, what are they? They're to be of good courage. Right, if that sounds familiar, if you know the story of Joshua, this, this command to be of good courage or to be strong and courageous is going to come back as the people actually take the land. Because God's given it, and yet they also must trust him as they take it. So we're already we're seeing this juxtaposition, this interplay of what? Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God's given them the land. They must trust him and take it. Right? God has saved a people for himself, and yet we're also called to preach the gospel and to bring those people to himself. That's what we do. Both those things are true, seeing it right here. And notice how verse 20 ends. It was the season of the first ripe grapes. What a wonderful, sweet little detail. In other words, God's saying, guys, the fridge is fully stocked. It's all set. I've arranged it just perfectly and at just the right time for you to come and take the land. And so the scouts go on the mission, verses 21 to 24. It's going to be some 250 miles up. 250 miles back, largely tracing along the borders, occasionally sneaking in behind enemy lines, checking things out. And they're going to bring back, what, a cluster of grapes and of pomegranates, we're going to read, and of figs in verse 23. And the cluster of grapes on that vine is so heavy, they're going to have to hang it on a pole, and two men are going to have to carry it. That's how bountiful the land is. Indeed, flowing with milk and honey. So notice, they're finding the land just as God had described it. And then notice the attention to places. The Negev is mentioned twice. We're going to have multiple references to Hebron. Friends, that's not an accident. Abraham, too, had been called to set out towards the Negev in Genesis 12. He had been told to do centuries earlier the very thing that God is now calling Israel and these spies to do. And Hebron was where Abraham had purchased some land from some Hittites. It's where he was buried. Hebron was where Sarah, his wife, would be buried. It's where Isaac and Rebekah are buried. It's where Jacob and Leah would be buried. It's where most of his sons as well would be buried. And so as they crested the hills of Hebron, right, up over 3,000 feet in the cool of the air, as they crested those hills, 
They were standing on the hollowed ground of God's own faithfulness. It's where the patriarchs had lived and loved. It's where they had walked and worshipped. It's where they had believed and obeyed. So that place was as central to their history as Plymouth Rock, right, or Valley Forge, or Fort McHenry are to our own history. The Lord has not failed his people. That's what they should be seeing. That's what they should be experiencing. Every step a reminder that he has made good on his promises. This wasn't, in that sense, just a scouting trip. This was a faith strengthening. It was a faith emboldening. Right? It was a faith boosting kind of trip. But they don't exactly come back skipping and singing, do they? No, look with me to verse 27. Chapter 13, verse 27. And they told him, this is some of the spies, when they came back to the congregation, we came to the land to which you sent us. Right there you get a sense something is off. Wait, I thought this was God's mission. But these ten spies who are skeptical, they look at Moses and they say, no, no, this is the place you sent us. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in that land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, and the Amalekites dwell in the land of Negeb, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea all along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we are. And so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. And then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. Israel just keeps weeping. Have you noticed that? Weeping over meat, now weeping again. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Oh no, how did we get here? On the precipice of the promised land. And they're weeping and strategizing about how to go back to Egypt. This is like the anti-Braveheart. You know, they'd rather be dead as slaves than like fight for their freedom. Friends, what's happened is they're no longer walking by faith. Right? They're walking by sight. As we sang earlier, they're no longer standing as children of the promise. They're no longer fixing their eyes on their soul's reward. Instead, the peoples 
and their walled cities loom large in their eyes. That's all they can see. Strong, tall peoples and fortified cities. And where is God? He has receded entirely from their view. No longer in their sights. It's what Joshua and Caleb get to in chapter 14, verse 9. When they implore the people, as I read earlier, do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. He'll say, the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. That's what Caleb and Joshua say. And yet the people here are fearing, Israelites are fearing the peoples in the land and they are no longer fearing God. And friends, this is why the fear of man, right, the fear of other people is so dangerous. Christian, this is why the fear of man is so debilitating, so destabilizing to your own Christian life. For to fear someone is to hold them in awe. It's to seek their respect. It's to want to win their approval. And when that's our principal concern, right, when another's respect, when another's approval is our principal concern, what they think of us begins to control us. And we thus become slaves to their own opinions. Friends, what you fear most is a reflection in many ways of what you respect most. What we fear most is eventually what we will worship. Everything else will take a back seat. So faced with these giants that they fear, notice God becomes contemptible, no longer in their view. So friend, I ask you, what do you fear this morning? What do you fear this morning? What do you fear most in life? Do you fear failure? Do you fear what people think of you? Do you fear what people might do to you? How they might seek to harm you? And friends, whatever it is, how does that affect you? How does it affect you? How have you reordered your life around those fears? For if you feel, if you fear failure, right, if that's what you principally fear is failure, then you will sacrifice everything and everyone around you to succeed. And how do I know that? Because that's what I do. Sadly, that's what I do. You can ask my wife about that, and she'll give you an honest, sad, but true answer. If you fear what people think of you, your intellect or your body, you will do whatever it takes to protect that image. You'll lie, you'll hide, you'll deflect with humor, or you'll obsess about what you eat or what you wear. If you fear you're, you're a fraud, you're going to seek to whitewash your image, maybe hide your past. If you fear of being hurt by others, what are you going to do? You're going to withdraw. You'll close up. You'll protect yourself at all costs and keep everyone else at arm's length. We order our lives around what we fear most, which is to say we worship it. Because that's what worship is. It's to order our lives around those most pressing concerns, to bow down to whatever it is that we think we need because we can't do life without it. So whether you want to call it codependency, whether or not you want to call it peer pressure, whether or not you want to call it shyness, right? The fear of man has many names, and it is no respecter of persons. We all suffer 
Now, if you want to think more about this and ponder more about it, we have an excellent resource on our bookstall. When people are big and God is small, tiny little magnifying glass, overcoming peer pressure, codependency, and the fear of man. Excellent resource. Highly commend it to you. All right. The Israelites feared the strength of the nations there in Canaan. It's what led to their own rebellion. And notice how at the root of that fear is a kind of irrational unbelief. At the root of their fears are a kind of irrational unbelief. Because they've just displayed the bountiful fruit of the land before the congregation. And yes, they've spoken of the strength of the people. But when pressed by Caleb, notice what happens. Notice how the ten answer. All of the sudden, this bountiful land, verse 32, is land that what? Devours its inhabitants. As in those who lie there, or live there rather, are going to die from this land's hostile, inhospitable environment. That's how it devours apparently its inhabitants. But friends, wait, think about that. If that's true, how does it sustain all those people? If it's such an inhospitable land, why do so many people choose to live there? And now we're reading about the Nephilim in verses 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 33. Right? Those were those demigods that existed before, uh, before the flood in Genesis 6. And at this point, you've got to wonder, are they just making it up? Are they making up giants? Anything to avoid having to take the land in their fear. Because this is what fear does. It breeds a kind of irrational unbelief. You know, friends, we always tend to think of unbelief as an intellectual issue, don't we? If I could just have all my questions answered satisfactorily... If I could just rid myself of all my doubts, if you could just convince me and answer every question, then I would believe. But notice here, I think if you were to ask the average Israelite, could God lead them into the promised land? Is it possible? I think they'd say, yeah, they'd have to concede, of course it's possible. Right? They know he can do it. He did deliver them from Egypt. The problem is, that's not what they can believe. It's not an intellectual issue that they're wrestling with. Yes, the land is bountiful. Yes, the people are powerful. The issue is not that. It's not in the facts. It's more moral. It is ethical. They aren't willing to trust. They don't believe in that moment that God will prove faithful and they're unwilling to order their life around that word. It's too risky and too hard. And in that sense, it's deeply irrational if you think of what God has brought them from, what he's led them to. But friends, as much as we can look at them, are we really that much different as Christians? Can our unbelief not often be equally as irrational as theirs? So we, yes, we believe God created the universe out of nothing. He spoke it into existence and yet we struggle to believe those test results belong to him. We believe that God directs the hearts of kings and nations. That he can steer them wherever he wills. We can quote that. And yet, we don't believe that he can change the heart of our child. Or the heart of our spouse. Or the heart of our coworker. We believe that God entered into history as a baby and he dwells among us actively, intimately, and yet when it comes to our own life, we deny it. We say, I don't see it. We believe that his blood paid for the sins 
of all of those who would trust in him. And yet we struggle to believe that he could forgive this sin of mine, this shame of mine. We believe in the power of God to raise the dead. And yet we don't believe he has the power to break that sinful habit. No, it's never going to change. Unbelief, friends, is always irrational. But it lives in our hearts. And yet contrast their response with that of Joseph and Caleb and Moses. For Joseph and Caleb were presented with the very same facts, the two other spies of the twelve. Same facts, same reality, but they chose to view that reality in light of God's power and God's promises, not the people before them. So look down with me to chapter 14, verse 7. To all the congregation of the people of Israel, right, they spoke, the land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. So notice how they're fighting fear of man. They do that by keeping the power of God and the promises of God right before their very eyes. Right? So far from being devoured by them, we won't be the prey. Joshua and Caleb say, no, the people, those nations, they're bread for us. They're going to be on our menu, not the other way around. So we can hear even Caleb say, right? He's likely saying something like, hey, guys, come on, take the Egyptians. Consider them, right? They were the dominant superpower of the region. And chariots and bodies are still washing up on the Red Sea. That's the power of our God. Guys, what are you doubting? What do you think he won't do for us? Can he not take care of some tribes and some hills if he can do that, the Egyptians? Likely that's what they're preaching. And friends, what had God promised back in Exodus 3.17? But to bring his people into what? Into an empty land? No. To bring them into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. In other words, recognize they are finding the land with all those peoples exactly as God had promised and described. The peoples are there just as he said they would be there. That should not have confounded their faith. That should have confirmed their faith. This is exactly the way God said it would be. But they've taken their eyes off the promises and power of God. They put them Sheerly on the people. And friends, once you do that, take your eyes off God like that, it's only a matter of time before you become a slave of the fear of man. There were evidences of God's grace all around them. Yes, there was the cluster of those grapes. But friends, evidences were everywhere in every step they took. They didn't have eyes to see. Friend, I wonder if that could be true of you this morning. You know, they had that the cluster of grapes. The reality is all of us have clusters of fruitfulness, of grapes that God has put into our life if we have eyes to see, of his own faithfulness to us. And friends, contrast that as well with Moses' own response. 
You know, if Joseph and Caleb were governed by the fear of God rightly, Moses was governed by the fame of God. As in God's name, God's reputation, right? His fame. Look down with me at chapter 14, verse 13. God says, all right, at this I'm going to disinherit the people. But verse 13, Moses says to the Lord, well, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land that they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face. And your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Friends, what a remarkable shift. Think back to Moses' prayer in chapter 11. Do you remember that prayer? When the people sinned again over the menu? And what did Moses do? He made that all about himself. Remember, 20 references and five verses to him. And yet, here we are, and Moses isn't talking about his frustrations and his inconveniences. Now we have at least 13 references explicitly to God, to his name, to his glory, to his fame. Not Moses. Moses isn't even factoring himself into the equation anymore. Friends, what we're seeing rightly, that if, if we're followers of God, God's reputation always trumps ours. It always takes priority over ours. His name comes before our name. His reputation comes before our own reputation. Friend, I wonder if that describes you. If you're a Christian, in what ways practically have you had to live out what it looks like that God's reputation comes first in your life? What preferences have you had to lay down what decisions have you had to make? What words have you withheld? What things have you not said? What things have you chosen to do against your own heart of, of sorts? What have you chosen to do in order to prioritize God's name and his reputation and not yours? You know, if we're motivated by God's glory, we can still be comforted by his prayers when he doesn't answer them in the way we would like. Because the reality is God is sometimes more glorified in our weakness. He's sometimes more glorified in our suffering. He's sometimes more glorified, frankly, in our failures. Because it, it's in those failures that his grace often shines brightest. And it's in our weaknesses that his strength shines most strongly and clearly. Now, if you come here and all you see is that God exists to do your bidding, that God exists kind of as your co-pilot, as your life coach, the one who's going to kind of help you get ahead in life, 
then when God doesn't answer your prayers, you assume God has let you down. He hasn't kept up, as we thought last week, of his end of the bargain. He has failed you in some way. And yet when you see God as who he is, as a loving and a sovereign master, one who does all things for our good and all things for his glory, then we can trust his purposes even when he decides that his purposes are going to be worked out in our own pain. But friends, that's what unbelief can't do. It's unable to see that. It doesn't have those eyes. And the words of the old hymn, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. So if the root of rebellion is a, is a sinful fear and unbelief, what's the reward of rebellion? What does it gain us? What does rebellion profit us? That's what I want us to secondly think about. Rebellion's reward. Rebellion's reward. Because Moses interceded for the people, and God again pardons on behalf of his intercession. He doesn't entirely abandon the nation. He doesn't disinherit the people and start over. And you got to think, somewhere in Moses' heart, that was a temptation, right? It's like, this church plant thing didn't work out so well. Let's start with a new crew. That's what I wanted back in chapter 11. You're giving me my wish. Let's go. Wonderfully, Moses doesn't do that, though he may have been tempted. But it doesn't mean, because God has partially pardoned his people, that there will be no consequences. Look down at chapter 14, verse 21. But truly, as I live, this is the Lord speaking, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness and have yet put me to the test ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Do you see the poetic justice once again in God's response to his people? He says, all right, you all say you want to go back to Egypt, back in chapter 14, verse 2. You want to go back to Egypt? That's the direction we're going to go, back by the way of the Red Sea. You would rather die in the wilderness. You will have your wish. You will die in the wilderness. Friends, again, be very careful what you wish for. Very careful what you say you must have, right? They wished for meat, and they got it until it killed them. They wished to die in the wilderness rather than trying to take the land, and that's exactly what God will give them. And imagine what a crushing blow that must have been in that moment to hear those words. How many of the people were second-guessing here? Wait, God, like, we take it back. This isn't actually what we want. We, we actually want it. We want to try it. We want to go a different direction, Right? This is what happens, though. They got what they wanted, only to come to find that it's not what, in fact, they needed. And that's what sinful unbelief does. 
That's where it leads. Right? It, it tells us and convinces us that we must have it. And then as we pursue it, it only leaves us with what? A portfolio of pain, a catalog of regrets. You could wish, you could do it all over, but it's too late at this point. You will fall, the Lord says. But look down to verse 31. You will fall, but your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness." According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end. And there they shall die. Oh. That is brutal. There is death everywhere on these pages. And then just to confirm that judgment, the ten spies who had brought back the bad report, they die from a plague. Verse 37 so get, already, it's as if they're back in Egypt, people dying from plagues. Friends, that's the reward of rebellion. It's death. Physical death. For the dead bodies just keep mounting. The wilderness is quickly becoming one mass grave, littered with tombstones blown sideways by the wind, Hastily etched epithets there, covered now by dirt and dust. That's what their eyes now behold. But it's not just the physical death. Don't miss it. That, it is a reward, so to speak, of rebellion. Those, that is the fruits of rebellion, but not just physical death. Physical death, notice, that's not even the primary consequence. Notice they are to be what? They're to be cut off from God, from His blessings, Forty years to wander, excluded from his rest. One by one, those bodies will fall, stumble, hit the ground, and never rise again. Not one of them will see the promised land. Not one of them, save Caleb and Joshua, will enter that promised rest. Instead, for the remainder of their lives, what does God say they will know? They will know, verse 34, his displeasure. Or as the NIV puts it, you will know what it is like to have me against you. Can you fathom what that might be like? To have this God against you personally. So if you're catching the picture, friends, this is a picture taking shape of a final judgment. It's what we read earlier from Hebrews chapter 3, right? Banished and barred from heaven. This is a sentence of endless weariness, 
where God's active opposition against them has no end. Friends, that's what hell is. That's what's being pictured here. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the presence of God and the fury of His wrath and displeasure. And that's what they're going to get a taste of. That's the reward of their own rebellion. Friends, nothing could be more sobering. Nothing could be more chilling. Right? We can recover from the loss of a game. I mean, who really cares? The loss of a job. Friends, the loss of a close friend. This is a loss you can't recover from. Ever. So what does one do in such circumstances? I mean, if you're in Israel's shoes, you've made that dreadful choice. You've forsaken the Lord. What do you do? Well, notice what Israel does. Chapter 14, verse 39. We read that they mourned greatly. And then what do they do? They decide to go up and they try to take the promised land. Though Moses forbids them, says that's not the way, God won't be with you. They chose to go anyway and they chose to go alone. You wonder how many that left looked back over to their shoulder to wonder, is Moses going to come? Is the cloud going to lift and depart? Is the ark going to follow? Any of them having regrets as they marched uphill to face a fortified city and trained armies? They thought they could work their way back somehow into God's favor. Notice they presumed, verse 44, they presumed they could earn their way back. You see, after all this, Israel still doesn't take God seriously. They're still not even listening to Moses. Are they sorry for the consequences of their sin? Evidently. No doubt they feel some remorse over their sin. They mourn. But they have yet to truly repent over their sin. And so what do they do? They die outside of the presence of God. And they die under the curse of God. You know, if you've come, I recognize as a visitor, you know, this is a heavy message. I entirely grasp and understand that. And if you wouldn't identify yourself as a Christian and you're in any way holding on to your life, your good works, what you've sought to do in this life and to offer it up to God as some kind of a gift that you expect him to accept, look very carefully at the lives of these Israelites. There is no amount of reform no matter reforming our own actions that can save us from the consequences of our own rebellion. Right? Every one of us has rebelled against God. We read in Romans 3, there's no one righteous, not even one. No one who truly seeks after God. Everyone has turned his own way. Rebellion does, in fact, run in our blood. Rebellion isn't just the American way. Rebellion is the human way. It's the way of the human heart. And it's not just a James Dean thing, right? That is all of us thing. And I want you to see far from what the world would suggest. Rebellion isn't cool. We see it's cowardly in these Israelites. Far from being countercultural, this kind of rebellion is deeply cultural. Far from separating oneself from the crowd, as many think of the rebellious. No, it's actually how that we just merely become one of the crowd. 
and far from our rebellion resulting in liberation and in freedom, all it finally earns is death and misery and God's everlasting indignation. That's what it it earns us. Not liberation, indignation. Which is why we need someone to put an end to our rebellion. And friends, that's exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to put an end to the rebellion that resides in our own hearts. Because unlike us, Jesus never rebelled against God. Never rebelled against his heavenly Father. Never grumbled against God. He lived the life that you and I were all meant to live. And we have chosen self-consciously not to live. We can't blame outside forces We can't blame our childhood. We can't blame these bad things. Every one of us knows what it is like to choose our way over God's way. That is the heart of rebellion. And then Jesus died a rebel's death, crucified upon a cross as a criminal in the place of sinners. He died as a substitute. And then Jesus rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death, so that if we would truly turn from our sin, repent, give it over, turn away, turn to God, walk by faith, we can know everlasting life with him. That's what the promise of the gospel offers to every rebellious heart. For when we do that, we will not spend an eternity under his displeasure, but we will spend an eternity under the smile of his eternal presence. Friends, that's what the Bible offers to the rebellious. Not that we battle our way back to God, but that he has already won that battle for us. To all of us in this room, has Jesus done that for you? Has he done that for you?